Today is Palm Sunday, and uh, Palm Sunday, a lot of people think, you oh, know, Palm Sunday, what is that? And, you know, it was a good Friday, there's Palm Sunday, Easter we kind of get, but then we're confused by all that. Look, if you don't know, Palm Sunday is uh, some referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry, triumphal entry into Jerusalem for his last week of ministry after 33 and a half, excuse me, 33 and a half years on the planet and about maybe three and a half years of ministry, direct ministry when he came and emerged across the Jordan after having been tempted for 40 days in the wilderness and began the most extraordinary ministry, the most, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you're not a believer here this morning, it's, I don't even think it's an arguable point that Jesus has had more impact on the world than any other human being that's ever walked, the, walked this earth. And so this was his last week, and uh, I just want to read the account to you. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read the account of the triumphal entry, and then we're going to look at it, and it's going to dovetail right into what we've been talking about as it relates to David. And as we know, all that dovetails into our lives. This is, in fact, a pattern that consistently emerges in Scripture that helps us in the 21st century. This helps me in my walk. It helps me understand what God is like and what his desire and passion is for me in this world. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. It says, And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you're going to say this, Lord, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, he's quoting Zechariah 9 verse 9, says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Now, look, look at the next word, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees, spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of them and those following were shouting and now what are they shouting? They're shouting Psalm 118. They're shouting this glorious messianic psalm that was delivered 1,000 years in advance of Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this guy? And the crowds were saying, Well, I think this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This began one of the most extraordinary weeks that any human being has ever walked out on the planet. Passion week, if you will. A lot of activity happened in this last week, but this was a monumental moment. This was Israel declaring that Jesus was the king, applying Psalm 118 to Jesus. Jesus, knowing exactly what had to be fulfilled, already knew what was going to go down. There was uh, going to be a donkey in the road, and he was going to ride in to Jerusalem. He was going to come up. Now, remember, he'd healed blind Bartimaeus just a few days earlier. If you've been to Israel or you may be going here with us in December, we'll make the same ascent. This is where many of the psalms come from, the, songs, the psalms of ascent. 
they're ascending Jerusalem. You climb almost 3,000 feet from where you are, and then Jericho, which is east, maybe 17 miles or so east of Jerusalem, and you begin this long climb, and then they come up right up over the top, and that's Bethany and Bethphage. Now, that Bethany is actually where Mary and Martha were from, the brother of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus liked to hang out with people that had been raised from the dead. He still likes to hang out with people who have been spiritually raised from the dead. I find that awesome. He didn't find the, where we'll stay. We'll get to stay in King David if you're going to go with us to Israel and we're going to be right there. No, he went right back up to Bethany. If I can find a little bed and breakfast, maybe we'll stay there one day, stay there someday when we go to Israel. But he would make his way down humbly again because it's a picture of who he is. Notice I said is because he's not dead anymore. He's raised and he would make his way down uh, this mount, through the Mount of Olives and through the Kidron Valley and up and what? Riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey. Tonight, this morning, we're going to call this, in fact, the way of the donkey. Now, you've got to realize that people are fickle, and as they came in, as Jesus comes in, they're giving him a celebration. Uh, this is one of, they're, they're ready for him, in fact, to do exactly as they have planned for him to do, just like we are. We plan all the things that Jesus is going to do for us. We come, to, we come to Jesus, we come to church, and then we make all these plans about things that Jesus is going to do for us. And, uh, but then just a week later, uh, in Matthew 27, 22 and 23, he's having this conversation with Pilate, and Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who had called the Christ? And all of them said, the very people who were worshiping him and, and exalting him as he came into town just a week earlier, crucify him. And they said, why? He, Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? And they kept shouting all the more, crying, crucify him. You know, we have the same tendency. If Jesus doesn't give us what we want, when we want it, we begin to question his authority, just like they did during the course of his week. Jesus or why or that happens a lot. I meet a lot of people that says, you know, I tried religion and that didn't work for me. Jesus wasn't willing to run my universe exactly as how the way I wanted it to be run. Something profound is happening here. Now, what I want to go back to here is uh, I'm, I'm going to look at a slightly different account now. Luke chapter 19, verse 29 and 31. All four Gospels, by the way, give us a picture of the triumphal entry slightly differently. And by the way, sometimes you'll see two angels in an account, like when Jesus is raised from the dead, we'll be celebrating that next week, or one angel. Look, this is not unusual. Just because I came here and I said, well, you know, I saw Pastor Paul there at church on last Sunday, and everybody said, well, what about Mary? He didn't say he saw Mary because they said he saw Paul and Mary. Well, what about Mary? Just because I didn't include Mary didn't mean that Mary wasn't there. Uh, they just mentioned one beast of burden here in the Lukean account. Luke 19, 29 says, when he had approached Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of that was called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Find that interesting? Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Now, this is very important because the Lord had need of this colt. Why? Well, in some ways you could say, well, it was to fulfill exactly what Zechariah had seen. Hundreds of years in advance of Jesus. Just what we read a minute ago on the Matthew 21 account. Zechariah 9 verse 9, you know, uh, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, but, but not in triumph, gently. 
That word in the Hebrew is very interesting. It's uh, praus in the Hebrew, and it's a fascinating word, this word gentle. I love Thayer's definition. Listen to what he says about this Hebrew context of what does it mean this king is going to be unlike any other king. This king is going to come in very gently. So what he says, mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, meekness. Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. Notice, we accept them. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than on their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict. Maybe you're going through something similar. That he is using them to purify his elect and that he will deliver his elect in his time. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite. The opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not of human will. Look, the process that we see here in Jesus' gentleness is that Jesus was not preoccupied with himself at all. He was pretty clear when he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, and the beauty of, part, the beauty of this praus, the beauty of this word is it gives us a picture of of the very nature of the creator of the universe. You know, people all the time are indicting God based on his character. For instance, if God is good, if there is a God, but then if this God is good, why all the evil? Why all the suffering? Why everything that's going on? Why does he allow this to happen to me? Why, does this he, why did he allow this to happen to my family? Look, in my view, God has settled this issue once and for all in coming and taking the form of a bond slave. We're going to see that in Philippians 2 in a minute. Jesus... Just by his very introduction as the king said, this is the pattern, all who will follow me will walk for all, all time. Now, you may think this is interesting. This is just kind of an observation of what happened to Jesus. But Jesus then turns around and tells his disciples, now you pick up your cross and you follow me. He also says, and he says, look, all the things that I've done, you're going to do the same things and even greater things you're going to do. And he told that to his followers. I find that fascinating because we like the, uh, the healing part and the, the, the grandiosity of who he was. We like maybe even his celebrity in some ways. Like he was really visible. He was, he was a notable guy. And we, we imagine that. But what about his way? What about merging that with his cross? What is it like to actually physically pick up our cross and follow him. Well, none of us have probably had that experience of physically picking up a cross and being mocked and brutalized and naked before the world. But you may feel in some ways that that's happened to you spiritually or that that's happened to you relationally with someone that you know, that you're close to, and they've disrobed you, they've slandered you, they've brought great pain into your life. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Maybe from somebody close, maybe from a, even a family member, somebody you love and that they've They've bitten the very hand that fed them all their life. Maybe a kid, maybe a, maybe a grandson. 
maybe a dear friend, maybe even your own spouse. But see, the pattern of Jesus, see, Palm Sunday is so beautiful because it's all of our journeys. That's the point. This is not just looking back historically and looking at Jesus and the path that he walked because he's always inviting us in some way to follow him in his path. Follow me. Follow me. Be with the humble. Be, a, be gentle. Now, look, when I think about gentleness of spirit, I think of a certain pliability, I guess, uh, uh, something that God can work with, a certain tenderness and sweetness. You know, see what happens when we come to Jesus, this is the process, this is the path we must all journey on. At the end of the day, and this is key, at the very end of the day, he is forming us into being servant leaders. He wants us to be leaders, but he wants us to pattern our leadership off of his leadership. And his leadership is very clear. It's the way of the donkey. He didn't come in triumphantly in a brand new Ferrari, you know, coming down, you know, waving the flags with might of arms and, you know, guns blazing and saying, I'm going to come and take my rightful place. No, he gave us the pattern. You know, you want, you know what it is to be a follower of Jesus? It's someone who's growing daily into this same level of praus, the same gentle quality, the spirit that gets up and really is not self-assertive is not self-interested. Where are you in that path? On a one to ten, how would your spouse judge you? I know, and I realize it's not up to your spouse, but your spouse probably knows you if you're married here this morning. Your spouse probably knows you better. Or someone really close to you, how would they honestly assess? But in the end of the, in the, end of the day, it's how you assess yourself. Am I increasing in in self-assertiveness or am I increasing in a mentality of dissent? Am I understanding my path is in fact Jesus' path? Am I entering the fray mounted on a donkey? Is, this the don- is my life reflective of the way of the donkey or is my, is my life reflective of the way of me even though it may be shrouded in religious pomp and circumstance? We all know that can happen. That's why the world sometimes looks inside the church and they see pomp and circumstance and they see, they see all the same characteristics in the world. But the one thing that they miss is Jesus and his gentleness, his meekness, his kindness and his passion. Now, that doesn't mean he was always meek because there were moments in which he had to stand up and overturn money changers tables and and Matthew 23 the very last week we read Matthew 21 but if you press on into 23 he was very aggressive with those religious leaders why because he loved them and because he was trying to convince them that they were caught up in religion and that they were missing the very Messiah they were caught up in their own self-importance they were incredibly self-assertive and they lacked any true quality that would be reflective of his nature That's a powerful thought, and it's a frightening thought, to be honest with you. It's a terrifying thought to me because I I am a person that has always had a tendency to be very self-assertive and very self-interested, always very self-interested. And so this journey with Jesus is, by its very nature, a cross. Every day I get up and I have an opportunity to serve me or to serve somebody else. To serve this community as a whole and have my light go all the way to the end so that I can finally put my little tiny light, which is his light in me anyway, and add that to the great light of the church through history. I want to play a role in church history, and so should you. You should want to say, I want to have my, 
I want to have my effect on Christ and his church. I want to play my role. I want to make it through this life and finally be able to kind of symbolically light the fire. And that fire is ultimately him, and it was always his fire in you. But I'm not, I don't want to let the world put that out in me. And that's where we see David, and that's where we kind of return to, in fact, our story about David. And this is where these two things are going to dovetail. And we're going to see how does the Holy Spirit do this precious work on the inside of us? That's the question. Now, we can sit here and just kind of theologize about this. Say, well, you know, there's not literally a donkey, and it's not literal. I don't know that I can literally go over Bethany and down and take that path. And I, you know, I don't know what that would really look like. In actual practice, how does the God work this into us? And this is what we've been looking at in King David. And the first thing he does is he strips us of those things that we've always leaned on. We've seen that in David's life already. He lost, he's lost his friend. I think it's 1 Samuel 23. is the last time we'll even see Jonathan. As much as he loved Jonathan. I mean, you talk about his covenantial friend. He lost him. He lost his wife. He lost his job. He lost his position. And now we're going to see that he even loses more than that. He continues to lose everything. And he's sequestered to a bunch of wilderness experience. The wilderness of Ziph and the cave of Adullam and the cave of Engedi. And he's in all these various places all over, hiding, running, and losing even to the point this morning that we'll see that will boggle your mind. All because God has a plan. He is in training for reigning. And if you understand and see your life not as just a cosmic chance, but as an opportunity to actually reign with God forever and ever, I mean, this is the end of the story. And his church will see him as he is. And I'm putting a few verses together here, but we will rule and reign with him forever and ever. And today matters. Every mile in your journey matters. What we saw last week, as it did with David. But it's never the way we want it to happen we would prefer everything to just be linear and just to be every day gets a little bit better. I get richer, I get better looking, I get better this, I get better that. Everything in my life is just going my way. You know, everything is just perfect. My life is just, you know, I've just got that perfect life and everything just gets better and better every day. Is that really going to conform you to the image of Jesus? Will that help you in the way of the donkey? Or might you become the donkey? Well, my experience observationally, never experientially, but observationally has been those that seem to have everything always go their way will have their day. Will have their day. And the world loves to do that. Build them up and tear them down. So let's go forward. And I want to go to 1 Samuel now, chapter 21. And we're just going to take a little bit of a picture of this, always with this template in the back of our minds the Palm Sunday template, the way of the donkey. Because if you can't construct this, if you can't construct this notion in your brain that God is actually doing something very tangible, very important in the life of David, then you're going to think then David just got a raw end, short end of the stick. Imagine David's heart. I don't know what was David's heart. We, we, we get a picture of the unveiling of David's heart even after he's king. I mean, there's great sin that's to be found in David's heart. And as a young man, I can imagine, even though he was saying, I'm doing this for God, and he went out and killed Goliath, I'm sure he was dealing with all kinds of things in his own heart. It's hard for a young man to get that kind of fame, that kind of influence. I mean, here's the very king himself, and they're ascribing to Saul, as we saw, Saul slays his thousands, but David his ten thousands. That had to ring in his brain, don't you think? 
Don't you think Satan, as he's marching through life, Satan is there to whisper into his ear, David, you're the man. You are the man. See, Satan will do it. on. He doesn't mind which side of the horse you fall off. Some of you he would love, you're not the man, you're worthless, you mean nothing, take your own life, kill yourself, drink yourself to death, you know, go out and just give your body, if you, give your body away to sexual play, Get, do anything because you're worthless. Satan will see, if that works, if that's Satan's d- plot for you, then he'll speak, but he, he doesn't mind at all going on the other side of the horse. You're the man, nobody can, nobody's like you. You're something really special. You're something extraordinary. And there is some truth in that as a child of the living God. But I have to think that David probably was struggling on that side, especially after these experiences that he had had. I mean, just as a young guy, I mean, he, he, had, you know, he was nobody. His parents, his dad didn't even call him in to be you know, looked at for the anointing with Samuel. And, and now he gets and he's anointed king. And then he goes back out and, boy, I am something. I am something. And then he kills Goliath and now I'm really something. And now I'm, I'm as his top general and I'm killing tens of thousands. Uh, and I, I look at me. I, I don't know. We're not really given the fullness of what's in David's heart. But obviously God felt that there was a long season of preparation before he was really going to be able to enter back into Jerusalem and take his rightful role. And that's where we find him. So you think it was bad last week, it gets worse. 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter And has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you and I have directed the young men to a certain place. And then he would go on and he would say, look, we're hungry. We need some bread. And all Ahimelech had was the priest. All he had was the consecrated bread. This was not according to religious protocol. You need to know, David, this is the consecrated stuff. This is consecrated to God. I mean, this can't, no, we can't, there's no way you can eat this. And so David had to kind of weasel his way in. He had to lie. Now, this lie, as David will learn, you want to talk about a painful lesson. This lie will cost him, and it will cost him massively. How so? Well, there was among the group, and they did. And Ahimelech said, well, if you're on a king's mission, he lied about the king. Saul had not sent him on this mission. He was running from Saul. It was a guy named Doeg, the Edomite, Doeg, even the name Doeg. Please, if you've named your kid Doeg, can you see me afterwards? We're going to change your kid's name. Please don't name your kid Doeg. Doeg sees, and he, he's, he's the spy, you know. He's, the, he's not even part of the nation of Israel. And he goes back, and he speaks to Saul, and he you know, probably thinks he's going to get a big reward for this and tells him that they'd eaten the consecrated bread where they were and all this, and Samuel comes charging down. Ahimelech had fed them. They had, uh, they had been an, he'd, been, he'd become an accomplice. A little bit later, what, ha- what would happen is that um, Saul, the tragedy of it, there were 85 priests, and he slaughtered every one of them because of their giving assistance to David and women and children. We see that over and over in Scripture. You know, your sin doesn't just affect you. Your sin impacts your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids. But your faithfulness to the living God will impact your kids, your kids' kids, and your kids' kids' kids just as much. I meet with many of you very often. I said, what's the greatest way to impact my kids? Probably not even a conversation. Just living your life out, holy for God, devoted to the king of the universe. 
and their observation of you living out your life for them will impact them more than any other single thing you can do. This was an awful situation. Ahimelech was uh, trying to do the right thing. Now, some people think well, it, was, it, David was, it was okay that David did this because Jesus actually refers back to this incident because they were accusing his own disciples of, of some religious protocol issues. And Jesus said, don't you remember when you know, David and his men ate of the consecrated bread? Now, is Jesus saying that was okay? I think no, he was just trying to overcome. He wasn't defending David's lie there. He was just saying, look, there are moments in time where religion, you know, we, we set up our constructs and everything else. But in the end, Jesus, God himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's just like uh, we talked to a lot of guys uh, on, out on the PGA Tour. And, you know, if, hey, if you're a Sabbatarian, you've got you've to have Sunday church, Sunday go to meeting. Well, that doesn't work too well if you're trying to make a living and you make your money on Sunday. So the only way you're going to be able to go to church every single Sunday morning is if, the, if, if you always have a really late tea time, which is a good thing, or you miss the cut. But anything in between, you've got to pull out of the tournament. Some people take that very seriously because the Ten Commandments say, you know, observe the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying, look, is that Sabbath is made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. That was his defense by there. So some people think that he's defending David's lie. I don't think Jesus was defending David's lie at all, but he was defending the, the act itself because uh, this was a necessary thing in, to meet a human need. You know, people come in and say, well, you know, our church only does this, this, and this, and we can't give any money to you. I mean, you know, look, the, the human need is what's at the forefront here of God and his church. He cares about broken people, even if it defies your religious protocol in your own mind. Just as a sidebar note for some of you who may uh, remember Jesus uh, referring back to this particular incident. You think that's bad? It gets worse. Psalm, uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel 21. Now, it, I want you to go down to verse 10. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish. Or Akish, depending. By the way, can I just tell you something? Just as a sidebar, as a big family here, these names can be pronounced a lot of different ways. Like last week, or, you know, we talked about uh, Mephibosheth. Some say Mephibosheth. Strong says Mephibosheth. I said, so what I did is I used Mephibosheth in the first service and Mephibosheth in the second service. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll do the same. So we'll call uh, Akish, Akish here and, uh, you know, other places, uh, Akish on, on the second service maybe. So sometimes when you read these, and I've heard that name pronounced differently, you look, you get to get different people pronouncing it different ways. So it's okay. And God's really not concerned whether or not you get the pronunciation of these names right. Although I saw many of you trying to practice Mephibosheth as you left, yes, last week. Now, what was that name? Mephibosheth? They couldn't remember what that was. It's okay. You just remember the story. Verse 11 says, But the servants of uh, um, Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Gath? Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Where is David now? Do you remember? He killed one of their important people named Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. And now where's David fled? To Gath right into the middle of enemy territory. His life has gotten so low, so out, so disjointed, 
so functionally challenged that he's got to say, the only place I can find real rest here is right in the middle of the enemy camp. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever run so fast, so far, not necessarily trusting, and you find yourself right back in the middle of enemy camp? It gets worse. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you even bring him to me? Do I not like, do I not lack madmen? That you have brought this one to act, the madman in my presence, shall this one come into my house? Even the enemy doesn't want anything to do with David. Now, that's pretty low. That's pretty low. I mean, get the picture. Your anointed king, he's Goliath. I mean, you talk about marrying the, the very daughter of the king. She's probably a beautiful woman. Everything going his way. Has a covenantial friend in Jonathan. Has everything going his way. And then just God just says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. All these things, I love you, but I'm going to train you to be a servant leader. You're going to be the prototype. Not in, not in, Jesus is only going to be the one that can actualize it, but you're going to be a prototype for the one who will come after you and will lay down his life. That's why it's going to be the king on the line of David. This is the Davidic covenant, and, and you're going to be a forerunner of Jesus. Now, David was certainly no Jesus, as we all know, but he was the template. And so here's going to be, are you ready? Now you've lost everything, and now you're in the middle of enemy camp, groveling on the ground, pretending to be insane, letting slobber run all down your face and onto your clothes. Can you get the picture? Has he hit bottom yet? Well, I thought he would have probably hit bottom a long time ago already. Do you ever feel like you've hit bottom and then you haven't hit bottom? And he said, this has got to be the bottom. And then there's another bottom. Well, uh, Lord, are you even out there anywhere? And, and then there's another bottom. Well, you know, any of you heard probably Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of all time. I would have loved to have listened to him preach. Uh, I found this interesting. I actually saw this late last night. It was uh, on John Piper's website, Desiring God. And they write this about the prince of preachers. He said, they call him prince of preachers, but maybe it should be sultan of suffering. One biography chronicles his gout, his rheumatism, Bright's disease, which is just inflammation of the kidneys. In comments simply, Spurgeon knew unbelievable physical suffering. Yet God was making a preacher through pain. And in the end, Spurgeon did not despise God's purposes and his many sufferings. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rocks of ages. Is that any good? I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rocks of the ages. Now that to me blows my mind. And yet... That is, in fact, my experience. It's my experience, and I'm not fully trained yet. I mean, every day is another training session. I am in school all the time to become a servant leader. It's hard. It's a hard road, but the way of the donkey is the only way. 
If your life, look, if your life is not increasing where you see le- you're less self-interested than you were the day before, you have to stop and ask a question. You have to ask, am I on the way? Am I truly following the way? If you're more self-assertive and more self-interested and, more, and, and, and less tolerant and you're not more meek and more gentle and more kind and more servant-hearted, then something's amiss. You can make that decision every day. We all have to make it every day. Or God, in his loving compassion, will use the beautiful wave to throw you back up against the rock of ages. I prefer to learn by listening to the voice. But I'll be honest with you, in my own experience, I have desperately needed, not unlike Charles Spurgeon, I have desperately needed the waves. And I am thankful for the waves. At the moment, I am not. It does not feel good to crash up against the rock. But to know that that rock is the rock of ages. Remember when Jesus said, fall upon this rock and be broken? Otherwise, this rock will fall upon you and smash you to dust. Fall upon the rock. That was that had a lot of biblical accuracy, that metaphor that Spurgeon used. And this is exactly what was happening with David. And we get it in the very next chapter, chapter 22. It says, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard of it, they went down to him. And then verse 2, I find this interesting. I love this. This is what happens very often, by the way, when you find yourself out in the wilderness. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. I love that. You know, it's just a picture of God's church, you know. I mean, I was discontented. I, I, and I wanted to become a mighty man. There was a man, a man who discipled me and other men who discipled them and other men who discipled them. And I, and I came in and it was just like, but I, I was that, you know. I mean, even if you say, just, even if it wasn't a literal thing where you were literally in debt, I was in debt to God and, and, uh, and I was so discontented and I was definitely in distress and I began to gather. You know, the church really, people say, well, I don't like the church. It's so hypocritical. The, the church, by definition, is verse 2 here. This is the church. It's people who are discontent and, and spiritually indebted and recognize their indebtedness. And they're, and they're just not at ease. And they begin to gather together. And they begin to worship the one that gave them life. And then, paradoxically, in, in having lost their life and having started from the bottom, that they begin to find life. It's a really strange thing, the church, isn't it? But it's powerful and it's cool and it's awesome. And, and there's a place of meekness in the church. And when there's not, you should smell it out. I don't like to smell a lack of meekness in, in any one of our teams or people, but especially myself. Is there servant-hearted leadership? Is Palm Sunday and the journey of the triumphal entry, is that your journey? Or do you refuse to make that journey? You know, when I, when I look at these stories, I mean, here in 22, he, he was in the cave of Adullam, and then we have Doeg, and he goes back and tells Saul, and then the slaughter. I, I can't even imagine how David must have felt when the information got back to him that his lie, 
I mean, so you just, every, every place, well, at least I have a little self-respect. And then just, boom. And then, I, and then I'm salivating. I'm on the ground, and I have to pretend like I'm an insane man. Boom, 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 boom. And if, if that's not bad enough to then get the information that your lie just from a few days ago has led to the slaughter of an entire city, 85 priests in one fail swoop because you were a little bit hungry and needed to lie to feel like you needed to get, lie to get some bread. Everything David leaned on was being ripped from his very clutching grasps, which is pretty much the case with all of us. We cling to those things, don't we? And yet there's a beauty to this. You know, Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there real quickly. I, I just, this, I really feel compelled here. I think this is important. Some of you may in your heart say, well, that was Jesus, but that's not really us. And this is important that we get this. Philippians chapter 2. This describes us, or should, those who are following Jesus. Starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. By the way, that's a picture of what heaven will be like, which is what's going to make heaven, heaven. You know, you, you get around a person just, just for a minute, and you sense that in them, and you want to be in their presence, don't you? Think of the people that just flock to other people. Oh, the world flocks to celebrity, but they can't even get, you know, if they even just give them a little autograph like this as they're walking by, you know, that's just, oh, you know, it's just. But deep down, we're driven towards people who consider us more important than themselves. I mean, that's, you want to talk about good public relations? That's it. You, you don't have friends? You become that person. People will flock to you. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. It doesn't say that you don't ever look out for your interests. Just not only your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself. The way of the donkey, which was in Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped even though he was God. He said, not now. It's the way of the donkey. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave and being made in the likeness of men. It's the greatest descent in all the cosmos. Greatest descent there ever has been, ever will be, ever, is God taking on human flesh. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now, <clears throat> some people get really uncomfortable with what I'm about to tell you, but I think it has absolute biblical support. You should say, what should be the impetus to take on the way of the donkey? Self-flagellation, you know, asceticism, you know, we got to, you know, just be, you know, just go down and take the, no, 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 there is a motivating factor to this. And are you ready? As, and in fact, what's fascinating is the Bible that says Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He knew exactly what the joy, he was going to be exalted back to his rightful place. Do you know why you take the role of the servant? Do you know why you seek the lowest place? Do you know why you become the servant leader? Do you know why that? 
Because you believe that like Jesus, you also will be exalted. Now, some people say, wait a minute. That's a, no, it has absolute biblical support. Luke chapter 14. Let's just turn there. I know this is way off, a little off script here, boys, but this is important. Luke 14. Listen to this. Verse 10. <clears throat> but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when... The one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, we're not talking about exalted like your God or your worship. That's not the kind of exaltation we're talking about. Exaltation is just a raising you know, what happens is you humble yourself and you become a servant leader. Here's the paradox. You're raised. You're not worshipped. You're not ever going to be God. Jesus was God. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about becoming gods. But there's going to be their honor for you. And people are going to recognize who you are through your humility. But if you move in pride and, you, and that's the first place that you move, you'll be humbled. One of the motivating factors, and again, Luke 18, Jesus tells a similar parable. Peter talks about the same thing. Humble yourself before the Lord, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. Why would they be giving us to that if we, look, and again, exaltation. Look, we, we, we really recognized Billy Graham here a few weeks ago. Billy Graham was exalted. Why? Because he was so humble. It's a perfect outworking. We don't worship Billy Graham. He was a man like all of us. I mean, he, he had those human tendencies, and yet he was lifted up as a paradigm of what? Meekness and humility and kindness, pliability. He was a sweet man from everything I've ever heard or read and people who know him. People recognize that, and they go, that's Billy Graham. That's what kind of thing we're talking about here. That's that same exaltation. Now, did David ever get this, or was this just something that, ah, you know, he didn't really learn from it? Let me just give you a couple of verses that, of the Psalms that he wrote. Psalm 119, verse 29. Psalm 119, verse 29. Remove the false way from me. And graciously grant me your law. Do you think David knew of the false way in him? I believe he probably wrote Psalm 119.29 right in the midst or as a reflection on what happened with Ahimelech and the other 84 priests and all those families. I was a liar. Father, remove lying from my lips. Let me delight in what you say about reality. And then Psalm 119.71, listen to what he learns here. Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. How do we learn? Most often through affliction. Look, if you're going through affliction, and who's not? At some level, at some point, some type of affliction of soul, it may, it may be overwhelming right now, but it's just something that just grates on you and that wants to captivate your attention and get you riveted and suck you into the vortex of self-interest or, or melancholy or depression or something that wants to grab your life and just steal it away and say, no, 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 these afflictions are working in me. No, this is the wave that's going to throw me up against the rocks of ages. 
Is this a picture of beauty? Is this a picture of the kingdom? This is. This is the way of the Lord. And if it was the pattern for Jesus, and he didn't even need it, Jesus didn't need to be humbled. He was already humble. He didn't need to learn to have the other's interests at heart. He, he, before the foundations of the world, the Bible says that he was slain before the foundations of the world were even laid. He had already agreed to go to the cross before God even spoke creation into existence. He had already given up his own life for the lives of others even before he created life. So why did he need it? To show us the way. Mount your donkey right into Jerusalem knowing you're going to have people Fickle, strange people in the world that can turn on you like that. But even as they turn, and you, you have your cross, pick up your cross and follow me as Jesus told us. Be trained to the point that you can get and finalize your life and say, Father, forgive them for they don't understand what they're doing. Walk in meekness and walk in humility. And guess what will happen? The, the kingdom will break out all around you. People will come to Jesus. If this church and, and our live streamers and our community around the country, if, if we can begin to walk into deeper levels of exactly what Jesus patterned for us, there, it is impossible that things don't change around us. It's impossible. Kingdom will break out. People will want what you have. It's powerful. Is my friend Bob Brulis here? Is he here? Come on, Bob. What are you doing way up there? Now, this is a dear friend. By the way, I didn't mean seeing him this morning. I, I, I was looking down here. I go, I don't know if Bob's here. So this is going to be my own personal reunion with a dear friend of mine because I hadn't even seen him since he got into town. He got into town late last night. Uh, let me grab this over here. Is this assuming live here? Hey, dear brother, good to see you. Good, good to see you. Good to see you. Let's make sure this is on. Take that. So let me just give you just a quick little, I wanted to bring Bob up to the end here. Uh, Bob is a guy uh, that I met how many years ago? Almost 20 years ago or something Pretty like close. that. Yeah. And so Bob, well, Bob was, uh, he's a PGA guy professional. He was the teacher of the year up in Montana and all this other kind of stuff and had his own gig that he got going and videos and all this and he was a really good uh, golf instructor and he was over at Bermuda Dunes and had taken this winter job and brought his family down Debbie and his kids and all that and they were living down here and <clears throat> and uh, so we had a little fellowship group over at Bermuda Dunes and uh, well I'll let you tell a little bit of that story how you got connected with that because he had a friend and uh, they were uh, wondering what in the world was going on in the men's locker room in there and I'll, I'll let you pick up that for a second Bob. for all people for all in God's humor, it was a young, or it was an old Jewish guy. His name was Al Levinsky. And he goes, hey, what are those guys doing up there on Wednesdays? They a bunch of kooks? <laughs> I go, well, no, I know a lot of the guys because I'd been invited by one of the guys who was going there, but I didn't really feel like, you know, I worked there. Should I go up there? And I'd met Jeff because he played in the, the Hope. And since I was the, you know, the, the club, uh, the teaching professional there, I thought, oh, I ought to go introduce myself to him and, you know, congratulate him good luck and so but at that time I didn't know you were teaching yeah. in that in that Bible study so that was my first foray so I said well do you want to go 
and Al goes, well, do you? I said, I'm going to pick you up next week, and we're going to go, and we're going to find out what's going on. So I'll pick up the story from here, and then I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back in, because he'll, he'll skip the good parts. So, no, he won't. He's good. So anyway, so we were in there. I don't know how long they started coming. Al started coming a lot, and he'd kind of sit there, and he'd ask some questions, and it'd been two or three years, and I finally said, you know, it's probably time to just take Al to breakfast. And I always kind of assumed, you know, Bob was just kind of around, and we hadn't really had a whole lot of conversation, and maybe, you know, Bob was a believer. So I said, Al, let's go to breakfast. I want to talk to you about some things. And uh, then I thought, oh, it'd be nice to bring Bob along as just kind of a guy so he could kind of observe and just kind of watch. That's what Jesus did. He just kind of took people and come on, just come watch me do, do this kind of ministry. So I was sitting there with Bob, and, and, uh, and I said, Al, I said, Al, I said, after all this time, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited, promised Jewish Messiah? And he died on the cross and was raised from the dead for your sins. He said, yes, I do. And I said, well, do you want to just... Pray a prayer and just, just decide to follow Jesus. He said, yes, I do. And so I bowed my head and said, it's going to be a beautiful moment. And then Bob's over there and he's like, he goes, hey, can I make that prayer too? Can I say that prayer too? I got a two-for-one special that morning. It was really good. You know? And so Bob prayed that and Bob ended up getting baptized. And then, and then Al, bless his heart, he moved back up to Seattle. And I'm, I don't even know if he's still with us anymore. But, but uh, what a precious moment. But... Bob comes to Jesus. It's like going to Vegas. Cherry, cherry, cherry. No. He lost all of his money. He, either, he kept, no, he did, no, everything. He lost his job. I mean, here's a teacher of the year in Montana. He's, he's got to provide for a family. And so what happened to you there, Bob? Well, it was kind of an interesting deal. I got an opportunity to go back up to Montana and open up a new golf course that Dennis Washington owned. And my story there was in June, I was with Walter Scott, billionaire, uh, Phil Anschutz and his wife, billionaires, Mr. Washington, billionaire. So for five hours, I literally was a billionaire. We put our wealth <laughs> together. So I was at that pinnacle, thought I had everything. And uh, my precious wife and I had our anniversary in uh, July. This July will be 36 years. And so I was, uh, um, we, we had a long talk. She goes, hey you got to make this decision. Are we staying here in the desert? Are we all going back up to Montana? Because I was kind of going back and forth. So, you know, 75 in Montana, 115 in the desert. She was a little bit concerned. So on my drive back, I had, that's when you had CDs. So I had my, the Bible on CD, and I'm just praying the whole way. What am I supposed to do? And, and Jeff will tell you, don't always hear an audible voice. But in my Dodge Dakota quad cab, I heard desert. And I, so I get back to Missoula, I write out my letter of resignation, um, and they were stunned, like, what did we do wrong? I said, I just have to go back home. And so I go from hanging around with billionaires up there to coming back to uh, Southern California with no job. The only thing I could find, I was the first assistant at PGA West, which is, in the golf business, the lowest thing you can do. <laughs> You're washing clubs and cleaning carts, and, and so that was kind of my... My desert there to... Uh, it wasn't to kind of his desert. He was in the caves <laughs> was... of Adullam at PGA West. <laughs> so that was... That and how was many years wilderness. did you do that? I did that for 18 months and then got a chance to go out to Trilogy and I was the marketing director out there. Yeah, but when I watched, I, and, and we would sit and I, I'd press his friend, my friend, he, he was so hungry for the, the word. 
and discipled him for a long period of years, you know, and then had him start leading groups. Well, fast forward now, so his wilderness, now it's time for him to cross the Jordan and move into his calling, and that was still fraught with, but, so he went moved back up to Montana as the Fellowship of Christian Athletes guy. They didn't have anything in Montana, and now tell him what's going on in Montana. Well, I, when I first got back up there, so Debbie and I moved back up in 2010, we had the moving van and no vehicles. So we got up there, we had a really nice uh, forerunner that my son had crashed, and we had a big rainstorm down here and, and totaled it. I remember going to look at the vehicle after he got, because he hit a, kind of hydroplaned, hit a telephone pole, and I go to see that, and I was just devastated, like, how did he walk away from this? And so, but through that, hey, we went to Montana, we didn't have a vehicle, we didn't have a place to stay, and uh, so we got up there, Debbie's... Uh, Parents, we, they were out of town, so we got to stay in their house for a little while. And that was the start of, okay, we got to build this FCA program. And we had some lady that was doing some stuff in Billings, but if anybody knows the great state of Montana, we're pretty big. So Billings from Helena is three and a half hours. There's a lot of schools and a lot of kids and a lot of coaches between Helena and Billings. So um, I started to just... My big deal is I'd go to communities. I'd find the highest point in a community. And I'd just pray over it like, Lord, are we supposed to be here? And if we are, bring us workers, bring us coaches, bring us funding to do that. And so it took a couple of years really to get going. I got bounced back into the golf business a little bit and uh, to help. And it was, I remember I was working with a bank that was owning this golf course. And they kind of slid the number they were going to pay me across the table. And I kind of looked at it like, God, is this your provision for us? Like, it was amazing, like, okay, we're still doing a little bit of ministry, but you're helping us provide until we really can get our, get our sea legs. And so by 2012, we started going into full-time ministry. Um, we've gone from, I was making $1,000 a month as the state director, to now we're almost fully funded with that. We've got three other staff people with us. We're looking to raise more interns. We went from having about six huddles around the state to we have over 40, and it's growing. And it's amazing the number of times, and, and Jeff always talks about, I will pray in a community. And literally one time it happened in Livingston. I played on, prayed on a Friday. I was leaving Billings, going to Livingston. I prayed in there, went around the school, ran around the community. And Tuesday we would ha- get what we call a MLA, which is a ministry leadership application. Some lady had filled out, somebody I did not know, did not talk to, filled out an application to help get an FCA program going. And Livingston, that just happens time and time again with us. So, so that's where we're at with FCA in Montana. So you come to Christ, you go through your baptism, you go into the wilderness, God takes away the things that you think you need and that you lean on. He may not take away everything that you have. You may be a wealthy person that never he takes away, but he's going to take those things away that you lean on. And his desire for you is to get and mount a donkey And become low and a servant leader and lift him up and glorify him. And guess what happens? Then he begins to act in your life. Whatever your calling is, whatever, we're part of a community. We're part of the same community. I can go five years without seeing him and I always feel like we're still doing ministry together. Right? Just like we are right now. Do you see the pattern? It's over and over and over again. But if Bob had asked that very first question, where's God in this? I came to Christ, and now I'm cleaning clubs and picking up balls on the range. I mean, I was, I was killing Goliath back in Montana. 
I was slaying the tens of thousands and now I'm picking balls. Where's God in all of this? He's right in the middle of it. He's right in the middle of it. You know, it's through humility. God has a plan. He wants to speak to you, but it usually takes affliction. It takes wilderness. You know, it gets really quiet in the wilderness. But when it's quiet, you can hear his voice. Let's close with this worship song. I want you to listen to the words. It's a beautiful song. You're going to listen to the words. God has a plan. And then I'm going to ask Bob to close us in prayer. How's that?